grace, mercy, and peace to you, your, you beloved children of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 67. Listen to God's word. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of rest and celebration with which you have blessed us. That we may rest in Christ, knowing that he has truly secured our salvation and is our good shepherd. He claims us as his own. He cares for us. He protects us and continually intercedes for us. We gather this day to celebrate this rest that is marked by his victorious resurrection over death and evil and has been realized in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. May our worship this day be pleasing to you, Father. Bless and lift our fellowship here this morning to join the host of heaven in praise of your glorious holy name. Reassure us in your steadfast love and teach us to love you as we should. Help us to grow in faith and in our thoughts and lives. Transform us, refresh, renew, and sanctify us this day as we long for the day when we shall put off corruption and the cares of this world, and shall see your glories face to face. Help us to serve you this day and every day without distraction as our joyful duty and with grateful hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Our first hymn comes from uh, hymn 98. Now thank we all our God. We see in scripture that when men approach a holy God, they become aware of their sinfulness. And so as we 
initiate our worship. We initiate early on this prayer of confession, which, which reflects that reality. But it also points out the security and salvation that we have in Christ. So let us pray together the prayer of confession printed in the bulletin. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, who receives your people into such wonderful communion that being united to your Son by faith, they should dwell in him, and he in them, who have sinned against you, approaching your sins and holding your glory, repent of our transgressions. We have sinned, we have grievously sinned against you, in thought, word, and deed. We have dishonored your holy name. Most merciful Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, forgive us all our sins. Deliver us by your Holy Spirit from all uncleanness. Enable us freely to forgive others as we pray that you will forgive us and to serve you from this day forward in newness of life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Our assurance of pardon this morning comes from Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, hear again the good news of the gospel, that Christ Jesus is the ground of our salvation. It is because of his completed work that we have forgiveness of sins, and it is his sure promise that we can know that we are truly forgiven of all our sin. So when you doubt or are uncertain, remember that he is our salvation and our assurance. And let us say together, praise be to God. Please be seated. Our call to grateful obedience then comes from Colossians chapter 3. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. For this is God's will for you in Christ. Amen. Our next hymn is uh, hymn number 154, Thou Art the Way.
seated. And now we reach that point in our worship where we join our prayers with those of our intercessor and mediator, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you have not left us to ourselves in this world, but given us the privilege of coming to you in prayer in the confidence that our lives here and now are a matter of importance to you. So we look to your grace and care in every aspect and detail of our lives. We begin with a prayer of peace for the world, for peace in this world. We pray for an end to the war in Ukraine, for an end to the tyranny in North Korea. We pray for border security in our own country. And as public discourse has become so tumultuous and strident in our day, we pray for civil discourse to replace militancy and intimidation in our society. We pray for our government, for our president and legislators to govern justly, and for the common good, not divisively. We pray for the integrity and stability of our government institutions, including the Supreme Court, We pray that the church here in our country can continue to live and function in peace and bear faithful witness to Christ, that she would speak knowledgeably and compassionately to the culture without being assimilated by it. We pray for our sister churches in Metamora, Pilgrim Church in Metamora and Oakland Hills in Farmington as they are in the process of searching for new pastors for their congregations. We pray for the appropriate committees and the sessions there. We pray for harmony and unity among church sessions as elders and pastors work together to do what is best for their congregations. We pray for the building up of your kingdom, the growth of your church in the world for Marcus Jeremy as he seeks to plant a church in Battle Creek. Globally, that for Mark and Laura Ambrose in Cambodia, for Ben Westerveld in Quebec, for Tina DeYoung in Uganda. We are grateful that you care for us with an intimate knowledge of our need. We pray, therefore, for Eduardo, for Jeff, Fawn, Leah, and Frida, for Tammy's recovery from COVID, for our friends Scott and Becky, and that Scott's participation in the clinical trial at Carmanos would be effective in treatment of his cancer. We pray for Shelley's father, for Jamie's mother, for Emily's father as he recovers from open heart surgery this last week. We pray for Michael's father, Bill Roberts and especially for Barbara and Jack Hannum, as Barbara's mother died this morning. We pray for extraordinary comfort for that family. Father, we ask all these things 
In the name of him who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power glory forever. Amen. I would ask that now the ushers come forward to collect the offering. to the reading and preaching of God's word, and so we pray for the Spirit's enabling our receiving and responding to his, to the gospel. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word. We hear and are affected by a cacophony of messages from the world every day. So we need to be corrected and renewed. We need to be reassured of your love and power, the promise of the gospel. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is in 2 Samuel. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till their land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. When Ziba said to the king, then Ziba 
said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Our Psalter response is printed in the bulletin from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We read next from the epistle of John, the first chapter. Chapter excuse me, the first uh, letter, third chapter. Verses one through three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Finally, our gospel reading in Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 23. And when he got out into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? The word of the Lord. What is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. Some people might say that the ultimate goal is to do good works. And there is some truth to that because in Ephesians chapter 2, it says we were created in Christ beforehand to do good works. But if good works was the ultimate goal, then we can just do some nice things here or there and we're all set. But I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we would realize how much we fall short and break God's word every single day. And so we, any good work we could do would never be enough. So good works can't be the ultimate goal. Others might say that the ultimate goal is to escape death and go to heaven. And again, there's some truth there because Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus conquered death. He defeated it. And we have the promise that if we believe in him, we will have life everlasting. But still, heaven as a place is not the ultimate goal. Because if you could have heaven as a place without Jesus, that is no heaven at all. 
Well, we get to our passage here this morning in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. And what is revealed to us is that the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to see God. And that's just a nuanced way of saying that we are going to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And our passage talks about how we can see God already here on earth through the eyes of faith. We can see God partially. But then in the world to come, we shall see him as he is. And seeing God as he is, that is the highest experience that a Christian could ever attain to. What an amazing vision for the Christian life. Now what this whole idea of of seeing God is, it's been called the beatific vision in the history of Christianity. And here's a quote from Thomas Watson, a Puritan. He writes, quote, about the beatific vision, Imagine what a blessed sight it will be to see Christ wearing the robe of our human nature and to see that nature sitting in glory above the angels. If God be so beautiful here in his ordinances, his word, his prayer, his sacraments, if there is such excellency in him when we can see him by the eye of faith, oh, what it will be when we shall see him face to face. There we shall see the king in his glory. And all lights are but eclipses compared to that glorious vision. So the beatific vision, it starts here on earth. We see God partially, but then as he is in the world to come when he returns. Now, here's why I'm preaching on the beatific vision. It's because preaching on this will orient all of our desires to Christ. And we can reach new heights, new depths of joy and satisfaction in him. And the beatific vision will give us a lot of hope. And it becomes the means by which we can fight the sin that is in our lives. Now, I'm saying all of these things by way of introduction. And we're going to go deeper into the beatific vision as revealed to us in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. So we've got three points, and each of these points correspond to the verses of uh, 1 John chapter 3. So first, we've got the joy of seeing God now. Second, the joy of seeing him as he is And then third, the joy of living out these truths. And so let's dig in here and and go deeper. First point, the joy of seeing God right now. So we're in verse 1. And it starts off by seeing see, see. And the Greek word here is an imperative. It's a command. God is saying, stop what you're doing. Drop everything and just look at me. Look at what I'm going to show you. Nothing else matters right now. Just stop and see. I come from Washington State. I was serving Bethel Christian Reformed Church in Linden, Washington. And that was a city surrounded by mountains. And there was a lot of trails, endless trails. And we we made the most use of our time there. We did a lot of hiking. And one of our favorite spots to go was was Artist Point because you've got Mount Baker, 10,000 feet, snow-covered on one side, and then Mount Shuxin, about 8,000 feet, covered in snow on the other side, and that place was called Artist Point. But but driving up to Artist Point, you start off just in dense trees and there's foliage. You you can't see much. But as you get higher and higher into the mountains, you see these little little glimpses of those snow-covered mountains. And when you first get to that clearing as you're driving and you see Mount Baker and Mount Shuxin, it's just awe-inducing. You just want to stop the vehicle. And I tell my kids who have their electronic devices or they have their book or are listening to an audio book, I tell them, just stop. Just, just put down what you're doing and just look. There's the mountain. We're going to see it even more when we get there. But, but that, that's what God is telling us. Just stop what you're doing. You've got to see this. It is so important. And what we can see is the kind of love the Father has, as verse 1 says. The kind of love. Now, there's lots of kinds of love. There's 
brotherly love, so to speak, or, or family love. You, you're, they're of the same blood as you, and you go to family parties, and so there's a camaraderie there. there there's what we would call romantic love, and that could be more based on momentary feelings or even lust and not commitment and, and lifelong covenant so there's these different kinds of love, but then there's the kind of love that the Father has. You see, that there's no category for this. It is so powerful, so profound. It's just the kind of love the Father has. Now that phrase, what kind of love, has been used before. Well, not what kind of love, but what kind of has been used before in Matthew chapter 8, which we read just a few moments ago. So there in Matthew 8... You've got Jesus and his disciples. They're on a boat. They're on the Sea of Galilee. And this huge windstorm ensues as wind is channeled through the mountains. And so, so the gusts are blowing fiercely and the waves are crashing into the boat. And the disciples are fearing for their lives. But Jesus is asleep. He's not concerned. And they go to Jesus and do something about this. Well, Jesus gets up and he says, peace. And the wind calms down and the seas become at rest. And the disciples are so in awe of Jesus. They say, what kind of man is this that the winds and the seas obey him? You see, they had no category for Jesus. Who, who is this man? No one else has ever done this. We've never seen anything like this. But they are in fear and awe. It's like they're brought to their knees. What kind of man is this? Well, that same kind of sense that the disciples had is the kind of sense invoked here in verse 1. What kind of love the Father has is a kind of love that brings us awe, a kind of love that brings us to our knees because nothing else is like it. And this love that the Father has is given to us. So it's by grace. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because we have been such great people. No, he just loves us by his grace and we receive it by faith. And this is the kind of love that makes us children of God. It's a love where God adopts us into his family and we call him father and he calls us sons and daughters and we can call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I don't think in today's culture we understand how important or how significant this is that we are children of God. It's because in our culture, it's less so than what it used to be, but it's still there. This idea of universal brotherhood or the universal, we're all God's children. A lot of politicians say that kind of stuff. A lot of famous leaders mention those things. We're all God's children or universal brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever. That's not biblical. We don't, by nature, have that kind of relationship with each other. And that's because of sin. Sin has separated us from God. And sin separates God from us, as God is a holy and just God. And then sin separates us from each other. So, so there's divisions in our relationships. So there is no universal brotherhood. Sin comes in the way. But then Jesus dies for our sins. And if we believe in him, we've got everlasting life and we are forgiven. We are made right with God, reconciled to him. And so God is now our father. And as we come to God as our father, then we come as brothers and sisters united by the blood of Jesus. So that's what makes us brothers. That, that's what makes us part of the, the family of God. It is nothing less than the gospel. So, so do you see how significant this is, that we are called children of God. How, how special, what a privilege it is, all by his grace. I love how it says we are called children of God, and so we are. And so we're meant to own that identity, live into that identity. Because life is crazy. And all kinds of stuff comes at us, and when we doubt, we, we wrestle with our own feelings, we wrestle in the faith. We have to go back to this reality. No, God calls me a child of God, and so I am. It's based on what Jesus did for me. And I have to remind myself of this all the time. I'm planting a church in Sterling Heights, and that's a very difficult area to plant a church in. And I've got my doubts about you know, planting in this economic climate or trying to reach unchurched and unbelievers 
And God has blessed us in so many ways, but then I still have my fears and all these other thoughts just creep into my mind. So I've got to go back to this truth. I'm a child of God. And so I don't know what, what, what you're facing, what, what fears you have, what struggles God has brought your way, but just own this identity. God has called you a child, and so you are. Just remind yourself of that. And There's so much comfort and strength. And, and being a child of God does bring opposition. It says that the world doesn't know God, so the world doesn't know us. So we will face opposition. It's going to be difficult. And I faced that as a church planter. Someone sent me a Facebook message one time, and they said to me, I hope you fail. I am offended by what you said. And so then I start thinking to myself, what? maybe I did offend them. Maybe I was too harsh about something. And you get all paranoid, and you start thinking about, well, maybe i got to change some things. And then it's like, no. I'm a child of God. They're not. Of course they're not going to know what this is about. Of course there's going to be hostility. And so anchoring ourselves to be a child of God helps us to face whatever Satan and the world and our own flesh throws at us. So this is what we can see of God right now. This love that the Father has and a love that makes us children of God. What a thing to behold through the eyes of faith. What a wonderful reality. The Christian life is utterly thrilling. And this gets us to our second point. The joy of seeing God as he is. And so we are in verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. I've been a pastor for over 13 years, serving Christian Reformed churches. And a lot of people over the years have asked me this question, what will I be like when I go to heaven? What will I be like when Christ returns and there's the resurrection and the new heavens and new earth? Will I look older? Will I look younger? Will I have crow's feet? If I struggle to walk now, will I struggle to walk then? And many mothers have asked me what their children will be like who have died due to miscarriage. And the Bible gives us little glimpses of these things. We can think of Revelation 7. Those are, are before the throne of God, clothed in white, waving palm branches. It's victory that there is no remnants of sin there. Or we can think of 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection, where it says some bodies will shine like the stars, some like the moon, some like the sun, just all shining in different ways of glory, but glorious nonetheless. These are images Revealed to us to give us a taste of what we will be like. But still, what will, we, what will we really be like? Well, here's the answer. 1 John chapter 3. What we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we shall be like him. And so what will we be like? We will be glorious like Jesus. And that's the best answer I think there is. I think that's the answer that's also the most satisfying Whatever we will be like in the world to come, it will be perfect and glorious, just like our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. And what is going to change us into that perfect form is the sight of God as he is. Sometimes I think we portray it this way, so that in heaven, we're going to be perfect, there's no sin, so we'll see God better. We'll get to enjoy that perfect relationship because of our, our new abilities and faculties and things like that. And there's truth there. But what our passage is saying is, we are going to be like him because we first see him. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It, it's that sight of him that's going to transform us into that perfect, glorious self. So we're going to see him in his glory and his beauty and his majesty. We're going to be engulfed in that light of holiness and we can never be the same again. What is it like to see him as he is? 
Well, we're going to see Jesus not as the humble infant born in a manger amongst mean conditions and perhaps smelly animals or in a cave or whatever tradition you, you follow with what was the manger really like. He, we're not going to see him as the man of sorrows. No, we are going to see him as the risen Savior. We're going to see him as the ascended Savior, the one who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, reigning on behalf of his church, who is coming to judge the living and the dead. We are going to see Jesus as he is like that. And so we're going to see his body, and it's going to be so, so, so beautiful and glorious and, and ravishing to our souls. And we'll see his face, which just radiates holiness and beauty, and that's going to be so sweet to us. We're going to see God as he is. And that's part of seeing Jesus like that. But we're going to see God as he is. And historically, this has always been interpreted as we're going to see something of the very essence of God. Now, ultimately, God is incomprehensible. I mean, God is so big that that our minds, even in the new creation, can never fully understand him. And we'll have all eternity to get to know him and still never fully understand him because he's that, that big and we'll keep exploring him and worshiping him. So even though God is incomprehensible, ultimately, something of his essence we are going to see. And we see glimpses of this also in Scripture. We can think of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees this vision of God. And so there's the cherubim and seraphim, and there's smoke and earthquake, and there is God in his glory. And there's that chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we can think of Revelation chapter 4, where God is on the throne and he's clothed in emerald rainbow colors. And in the midst of the throne is the Lamb. And before the throne are the seven spirits, which is symbolic of the one Holy Spirit going into all aspects of the world. And there's also that refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord and blessing and honor and wisdom and might be to our God. So we see these images that, that maybe communicate something of, of the essence of God, but, but all of those images are going to be dwarfed by seeing him as he is, as 1 John 3 is talking about. And how can we see him as he is? Colossians 1 says that, that God is invisible. He, he is spirit. Well, all of this is, is too much for, for our minds to comprehend and our hearts to, to even fathom but we think it's going to be something of just this immediate communication, that this immediate impression upon our souls where we just understand and see something like never before. And just describing it like that way is just very thrilling. And I want to see him, and I can't wait for that day. But, but again, all of this is just too much for our minds to comprehend. But still, what a glorious vision for the Christian life, that the highest thing we can attain to is seeing him. And we can see him already here on earth, partially through the eyes of faith, and then someday seeing him as he is. Well, how does all of this apply to us? As we get to our third point, and as we talk about this, I hope that, that your joy is swelling and that, that your emotions are, are being stirred. And so that's one way this, this can apply to us. Just pray about this. Ask God to open your heart and let your affections be stirred. And let the Spirit then take you to deeper levels of joy and satisfaction. This is our God. Behold Him and love Him because He first loved us. What a great God. Just know that. Experience that. But there's other ways this applies. As verse 3 highlights for us. It says that everyone who thus hopes in Him... So, so this beatific vision is the foundation for all of our hope. Think about this right now. Our eyes are so tired from looking at sin and misery. Our eyes can be so tired from looking at our own sin. I remember visiting this one woman. She was in her late 70s, maybe early 80s, 
This was at the previous church I served, and she gave me permission to, to share this whenever I want. But as I was talking with her, she said, Pastor, I'm just so tired. And I was thinking she just meant she's getting older, she's fatigued, she wants to be with Jesus. And that was true. But I just asked her, well, what, what do you mean that you're tired? And she said, I'm tired of dealing with my own sin. And she said, Pastor, you know what? The older I get, the more I, the more I realize how sinful I really am. And I'm tired of it. I just want to be perfect with the Lord. Well, the beatific vision gives us hope in our struggle with sin that we will be perfect as Jesus is someday. Or right now, our eyes are are so tired of of all of the stuff in the world, all the the misery out there. The past two years have been awful. Just one disaster after the other from uh, coronavirus to to inflation and gas prices and and wars in, in, in Ukraine and upheaval over different political beliefs and upheaval over abortion and what the Supreme Court justices might decide. It's just one thing after the other. And aren't we just so tired of this and our eyes are weary from seeing it all the time? Well, we can have hope because we see Jesus right now and then we look ahead to seeing him as he is and we will be in that new creation just a little while longer. Press on. Another way this applies to us is that the beatific vision purifies us. So it says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So I know that we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. But there is a purification that that happens right now. Because as we see Jesus partially, and as we look ahead to seeing him as he is, how could we ever sin again, if you think about it? So, So here's what we need to do. We need to hold up whatever sin we're struggling with and put it next to the beauty of Jesus. So what sin is taking you to the cleaners right now? What sins are in your marriage? Name it. Identify those things. And just hold it up to the beauty of Christ. Why would you do that anymore? Because the beauty of Jesus is so deeply satisfying. And so what happens then is that our affections for our sin gets replaced by new affections. And that joy of Jesus and pursuit of Jesus becomes far more meaningful than any pursuit of sin. And the final way I'm going to mention that this applies to us is that we should think about heaven often. I don't think we think about heaven enough. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know that as you get older, you think about heaven more. And that's true, and you can't wait for that day. But even young people should think about heaven a lot. Not to be all morbid, like we're going to die, and we do need to face up to our mortality, because we will all die someday unless Christ comes before that. And so believe in him now while, while there, there is time. But by thinking about heaven now enables us to live more powerfully here on earth. Because as we think about heaven, we are filled with hope. As we think about heaven, there's that purifying effect and so much more joy in the Christian life. So think about heaven. Read read scripture, immerse yourself in it, pray, and and come to to the Lord's Supper table. and, And our thoughts just keep getting directed to Jesus Christ. Now I want to close with... These words, this is from a song from Sovereign Grace Music. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing, but I'm going to quote this. And this is an adaptation of an old hymn, and the words are just very stirring, so I just want to share them with you as we close. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased. Turn your eyes to the heavens. Our King will return for his own. Every knee will bow, every tongue will shout, all glory to Jesus alone. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. 
Jesus, our glory and our prize, we adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. O Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word. And we pray that by your spirit that you will impress these words on our hearts. Help us to see more of you. And may there be new joy and affections for you. Give us hope and give us a peace that passes all understanding. Purify us with these truths that we talked about. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this time, let's confess our faith. So let's stand and we will say the Nicene Creed. So together we say, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was invented by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory, judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's sing 261, What Wondrous Love.
And now we come to the table of the Lord. And one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to help us to experience what the Word of God was preached. To experience that reality. Because in the preaching, we proclaim the gospel. But then somehow, or sometimes, it's hard to accept the gospel. Or even feel it in our hearts. Is this really good news? And so the Lord's Supper gives us something to, to touch and to taste. And to see. And so here at the table of the Lord, we can see our Savior who died for us, who rose for our salvation. His body given for us, his blood shed for us. And we do this until he comes again. And so our hope is revived as we look ahead to the time where we won't have to do this anymore in that new creation. So we invite all of those who are uh, confessing members of a church in Jesus Christ who've been baptized. And if that doesn't describe you, then we ask that you refrain from the Lord's Supper. Or if you're not sure, then also just uh, please refrain and maybe talk to an elder and, and you can do it uh, next time. But hear these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul writes... I received from the Lord what I also have delivered to you. Then on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. He gave thanks, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us give thanks to God. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Indeed, it is right and a good and joyful thing. And all glory and honor are yours, Almighty God now and forever. And together we say, Amen. And so come, for now all things are ready.
Take, eat, remember and believe that the body of Christ was given for our salvation. And take and drink and remember and believe that the blood of Christ shed for our salvation. Well, let's stand and sing number 521. My hope is built on nothing less. be seated. Thank you, Steve, for bringing God's word to us. Steve Van Nort uh, mentioned that he's planting a church in Sterling Heights. It's, uh, the plant is called Metro North, and um, Steve is coming out of uh, Redeemer PCA Church in Midtown. And so um, pray for that plant in Sterling Heights. It's called Metro North. There will be no Christian education today. I, I know, Steve. That's, uh, we can chat maybe after service. Uh, there is a formal reception. I think Rebecca Wilson is now Rebecca Swanson, as of yesterday. And so there will be a reception for Rebecca and Daniel on June 11th at Oakland Hills Church. So put that on your calendar. From 9.30 to 11 in the morning. 
The Thursday Bible study should resume this week at 7 o'clock here at the church. I mentioned uh, several weeks ago that my brother, Scott, who has uh, multiple myeloma, which is a type of cancer, um, was hoping to get into, they had discovered a clinical trial um, which might provide some treatment for him. He has been accepted, and I believe he has begun that treatment. So I think it's out of Carmanos in Detroit. I know he has a doctor up in Flint, but I think this is based in Carmanos. So um, good news, he's been accepted for the trial, and let's pray that it's effective. Yes. I, I, I would, I don't know. I imagine there's a, there's a cancer count they do in the, in the plasma, and they can monitor that. I suppose he'll be getting readings, I would, I'm guessing, in a month, but that's a guess. So, um, so a lot to pray for. Michael's father, Emily Sawyer's, um, excuse me. Emily used to be Emily Sawyer. Her her father, Mr. Sawyer, had open heart surgery this week in the Cleveland area, so she's there. <clears throat> she's there right now. <clears throat> so that's all I have. Thank you. Oh yes, I prayed for Barbara, but Barbara's mother passed away this morning. Um, okay, details forthcoming. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again, Steve. Nope, uh, that's for later. That's a private session, private recitation. Okay. Okay, you're dismissed.